You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, it's so great to be with you today. Thanks for being here. I'm told we're not supposed to talk about politics in chapel, but I can't help but start with my own short-lived political career. When I was in the fifth grade, I ran for student council president. And in the end, I fell just short of victory, but I'd like to think I came across well to the voters. I spoke passionately to my homeroom class and glad-handed classmates in the hallways and spent hours on carefully crafted campaign slogans that sounded witty at the time to me. I ran what you might call a winsome campaign. Like fifth grade me, many Christians today talk about the importance of being winsome. Some people say we should have a winsome witness, and there's nothing terribly wrong with this idea. If the alternative is insensitive, mean, and out of touch, then let's stick with winsome. But I actually think we can do better. The risk with winsome is that it sounds a little too much like charm, the theological equivalent of vote for fifth grade me. It suggests that we must have something about us that people will like. But the gospel is ultimately less about us and our own likability than it is about the God to whom we point. So instead of winsomeness, let me suggest a different approach, one that blends confidence with compassion. We can be confident in our faith and compassionate toward those who are different than we are. And if you're disappointed about losing the alliteration of winsome witness, you can call it compassionate confidence. When I speak of confidence, I don't mean certainty. Faith is not certainty. You have believed because you have seen me, Jesus says to Thomas after the resurrection, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Every person, religious or not, lives and acts on faith in things unseen. Nobody lives in a world of certainty. Whatever our differences may be, we all share the human condition of living and acting in faith. But Christian faith is also a confident faith. We are confident in the word of God and in the witness of those who have gone before us. We are confident that this world is not as it's supposed to be and that there will be a day when there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And it is because of this confidence, not confidence in ourselves, that we can show compassion. Showing compassionate confidence and finding common ground across difference is increasingly important in today's society, where it becomes harder for people in our own country to name the shared common good. We may all value public goods like highways and national security, but what exactly is the common good of this country? Something as thin as do no harm or pursue your own identity is not going to hold us together. Americans, like citizens of most Western countries today, lack agreement about the purpose of their country, the definition of human being, the meaning of human flourishing. These are not small things, and these differences affect not only what we think, but how we think and see the world. And they're not just abstract issues out there in culture or in politics. They affect you and me in our everyday relationships. Think about your own reaction, positively or negatively, as I say these words. Republican, Democrat, white evangelical, feminist, Marxist, make America great again. Many of us feel very strongly about these phrases and the people who embody them. And think about your own broken or tense relationships with family and friends over national politics, the pandemic, or the conflict in the Middle East. We have deep and 
irresolvable differences over the things that really matter. This is, in fact, one reason the United States has never been a thoroughly Christian nation. To be sure, for many years, there was a white Protestant culture, or what in some circles is called the Judeo-Christian culture, that influenced this country's founders and shaped its middle-class norms and values in good ways and in bad ways. But during this time, many American Christians forgot the biblical counsel that on earth we have no abiding city and we're not to place our trust in earthly princes. Over the course of generations in this country, this Christian culture drew some Christians toward the trappings of an earthly citizenship that obscured our deeper and higher allegiances. We are called to live in this world, but as the Apostle Paul reminds us, our proper citizenship lies in heaven. Today, the number of Christians and the influence of Christian culture in this country is declining. This new reality raises some anxieties, but it also presents many of us with an opportunity to practice Christian witness in a world that we do not control. We can learn from the biblical counsel how to engage in this world around us. The book of Jeremiah tells the story of God using the prophet to instruct the Jews in Babylon not to hate or ignore the pagan city, but to become its long-term residence, to exercise goodwill toward it through prayer, and to seek its peace and prosperity. They were to build upon the social fabric for their common well-being with their neighbors. If Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. They were to be known as the people who served their neighbors and their city. And at the same time, God's people were not to place their future hopes in social or economic improvement or stability. They were to love and serve the city, but they were not to forget that God would someday judge the city for all of its evil and injustice. And it was only in God that believers could place their sure hope of a future. In this hope, and because of this hope, instead of merely coexistence with the Babylonians, the Jews in Babylon were to strive for the good of the city, the growth of their own people, and the testimony to the glory of God. Like the Jews in Babylon, Christians today are called to be, and have always been called to be, resident aliens in this world, to love our neighbors with deeds of service so that those around us will see God's good deeds. So how can we begin to do this well, to love and serve our neighbors well? Let me suggest three postures toward compassionate confidence, humility, patience, and tolerance. Start with humility. Humility means knowing that when it comes to some of our most deeply held beliefs, we won't always be able to prove to others who think differently why we're right and they're wrong. This shouldn't shake our confidence in our own beliefs. But it calls for a recognition that some of what we believe stems from contested premises that others don't share. Humility is not relativism. And let me give you an example of this. I was once chatting with an atheist friend of mine who seemed to relish in all of our differences. He thought it was a great thing that I liked Duke basketball and he cheered for lesser teams, that I liked mint chocolate chip ice cream and he preferred vanilla, that I believe in God and he does not. All of these things made the world more interesting to my atheist friend, but his dismissal of God stopped me. Not all differences are good, I told him. We can disagree about ice cream flavors and sports teams, but Christians do not celebrate all differences about ultimate things. Humility can lead to greater empathy, but the goal is not to minimize the reality of our differences over things that matter. The second posture is patience. 
Patience requires listening well and sticking with hard relationships. This is increasingly hard to do. That doesn't mean blanket acceptance. And in fact, it might turn out that if you and I have a conversation, my patient listening to your ideas leads me to conclude you were just as wrong as I thought you were. But we can at least assume a posture that leaves open a different possibility that moves beyond dismissing others before we even hear what they have to say that assumes that with every human being, we have something to learn from them. Patience means taking the time to learn about the people around you, people who are complicated and frustrating and wonderful, but people whom you will only discover through patience. You will find in these image bearers what God has to teach you in their lives and their stories. And the final posture is tolerance. Tolerance is the idea that in this world of immense difference, we allow others to pursue their own beliefs and practices, even when we find them objectionable. This is not the same as approval. Too many people today presume the only way to tolerate someone is to accept and validate everything they say and do. That's not only the wrong way to understand tolerance, it's also philosophically impossible. Nobody embraces every belief and action as right and good. Every one of us draws lines somewhere. But in most cases, we can still tolerate others. Parsing the difference between tolerance and approval requires the hard work of distinguishing people from the ideas that they hold. Tolerance asks that we treat people with respect. It does not mean we respect all ideas. We see all three of these concepts in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, Paul urges the church at Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And yet most of us, when we're honest with ourselves, are not naturally humble, patient, and tolerant. We have to practice these postures. We can start by connecting with others in more tangible and more vulnerable ways. These can begin with really ordinary acts like sharing a meal or having a conversation. Sometimes it means focusing on common interests before delving into painful disagreements. I share a lot in common with the atheist friend I mentioned earlier. We both care about good writing, criminal justice reform, and cheap breakfasts. And we know these things about each other because even though we eventually arrived at our differences, we did not begin with them. You can start to find common ground with others through ordinary acts in your local context. As you think this year about what career you might pursue or how you might live a faithful life down the road, don't miss the call now to be present with those around you today. What are the challenges and opportunities presented here by the differences you have with your neighbors at Asbury? In a world that reinforces individual identity, what are the practices, what are the counter-liturgies that you can bring into your daily life here? This chapel service, this assembly, is one such counter-liturgy. This is a place that can't possibly depend on individual winsomeness, but can witness to the collective expression of compassionate confidence. This place is a regular reminder that Asbury is not anchored in a me, but in an us, that is called together toward a common purpose. It might even be better if you regularly reminded each other in this space of your common obligation to ask forgiveness for those things you have done and left undone and to forgive others for their wrongs against you. As you work to find common ground with your neighbors, both here at Asbury and in the places you'll go, you'll also need to tell the stories of those encounters and encourage one another to live into the confidence we've been given through the gospel. I worry that a lot of Christians today have forgotten how to tell good stories. We revert instead to propositions and sound bites and arguments, but sometimes stories say more than even the clearest assertions. Stories enrich our understanding in ways that propositions cannot. 
As Flannery O'Connor puts it, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way, and it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. The importance in stories quickly emerged in my work with Tim Keller in our book, Uncommon Ground. We realized how important it was to share lived experiences rather than abstract concepts, and we realized that our work would be better if we didn't do it alone. So we invited 10 friends to join us, scholars, pastors, musicians, ministry leaders, and others. And before we began to write our own stories, we met together in person to learn about those stories, to push toward a project that was more collaborative than individualistic. And we wrote On Common Ground with audiences like this one in mind, younger Christians who are looking for guidance of how to live faithfully in a world of difference. One of the best stories I've seen to illustrate some of these ideas comes of all places from a beer commercial. I'm going to hazard a guess that I'm the first speaker in the history of Asbury Chapel to quote a beer commercial. This one begins by introducing pairs of strangers who the audience soon learns hold vastly different beliefs about deeply important issues. The strangers, however, are initially unaware of their differences. They spend time getting to know each other in casual conversation, and then they're asked to tackle a problem together, in this case constructing a wooden bar on which to serve the beer. And then comes the critical moment, the big reveal, as the strangers in front of each other are shown videos of one another expressing their unfiltered and uncharitable views about the other side. We watch as they squirm awkwardly during the scene, and realize the fragility of their recently established common ground. And at the end of the videos, a voice fills the room. You now have a choice. You may go, or you can stay and discuss your differences over a beer. We, the audience, think to ourselves, this is not going to end well, and there are dramatic pauses. And then at the end, against all odds, the unlikely pairings stay to talk to one another. It's a lovely example of what is possible when we start with empathy and common ground. And here's the thing. It's a beer commercial. We have the gospel. With the gospel, we can move toward humility, patience, and tolerance because we are motivated by faith, hope, and love. We can assume a posture of humility because we place our faith in the person and work of Jesus. We can have all the patience in the world because our hope is in things to come and in things already accomplished. And we can pursue tolerance because we are motivated by the love of Jesus. In fact, the love of Jesus allows us to pursue something far more radical than tolerance. You and I don't just tolerate the people we love. We laugh with them, cry with them, celebrate and mourn with them. We risk the kind of personal investment that requires more than just coexistence. And what about when people are hostile to us or reject us? Jesus does not tell us to tolerate our enemies. He commands us to love them. As your president, Kevin Brown, wrote last month in Mayor Orthodoxy, Jesus says that if we only greet our own people, we're doing no more than the unbelievers. Even the tax collectors greet their own. To be Christian is to love our enemies in a way that the rest of the world does not. And then thank God that he does not merely tolerate us. He embraces us across our own sin and disobedience. Christians should be leading the way of engaging with confidence and compassion because we are called to embody the love that Jesus has shown to us. We are called to go into uncertain and messy spaces. That means taking risks and stepping outside of comfortable relationships. And when you do so, some people may cast aspersions on you for the company you keep or the places you go. They did that to Jesus too. And Jesus, of course, responded with truth and love. He did not, I would like to suggest, settle for winsomeness. 
And this makes sense. Jesus was not trying to win a fifth grade election. He was not trying to avoid hardship. He was not trying to fit in with others. Jesus had bigger plans to restore the created order to right relationship with God. And today, amazingly, he invites those of us who are his followers to join him in this work of redemption and reconciliation. We can do this with both confidence and compassion. May we, may you, Asbury University, be people who are confident and compassionate, who speak and act in the world with humility, patience, and tolerance, because your thoughts and actions are characterized by faith, hope, and love. Thank you.